And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Just a couple of quick comments about this interaction here. Uh, what we're reading does not correspond with the events that took place just one chapter prior to this. right? If you were to look back at 1 Samuel 31, very clearly, Saul kills himself. And yet here comes this Amalekite who is very eager to tell David, no, 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 I killed Saul. In fact, as proof of that, here's his crown, here's his armlet, the things that you know Saul possesses, I killed him. And we're like, what in the world's going on here? Like there are these two contradicting accounts. Which one is true? Why, why would the Amalekite do this kind of thing? And actually, we get some clarity on that in chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. But in 2 Samuel 4, David only rules over half of the kingdom. He's only king over Judah. Ishbosheth, one of Saul's descendants, rules in Israel. And these two guys take it upon themselves to kind of knock off Ishbosheth. So they like sneak into his house, cut off his head, and bring it back to David like a trophy. Like, hey, we've done the dirty work for you so that you can rule not just over Judah, but over the whole land, both Israel and Judah. And they're almost like you can imagine them like sitting there with their hand out like, are you going to give us a thank you for what we've done for you? I mean, we've expedited the process of you being king over everything. In a similar way, here's this Amalekite who doesn't bring Saul's head, but he brings the crown and the armlet, and he's like, hey, David, good news, you're king now. And, and we almost get the impression that he's like waiting for some, some kind of recognition, some kind of reward. And, and what do you think David's response to the news that he is now king is like? Uh, I, I, we might think, I mean, if it were me, like, yes, I've been waiting years for this to happen, and finally I'm king. Seriously, like I was anointed when I was a shepherd and have had to put up with all this nonsense of Saul trying to kill me, me being better in battle than him, more spiritually sensitive than him. Finally, it's my turn. Let me have at it, right? I was kind of thinking of uh, that song from The Lion King, like, I just can't wait to be king, right? Like, that would totally be me if I was waiting that long to be the king of Israel. Like, yes. That's not what David does here. Look at verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put your hand out to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said, From your blood is your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I 
David's response here is much different than we might expect it to be. It's not the, finally. He tears his clothes. He shows this extreme grief at the news that Saul is dead. He mourns and weeps and fasts. He leads his men in these activities. In verse 17 to the end of the chapter, we're going to see David actually writes a lament for Saul, praising him in a way that just doesn't quite add up in our minds. And the guy who claimed to have killed Saul, what happens to him? David kills him. Why, why were you not afraid to put your hand out against the Lord's anointed, he asks? Your own blood be upon you. Now, now by David's use of this word, the Lord's anointed, it happens twice in the span of verses 11 to 16, we get the idea that this title, this position is something that David takes very, very seriously. He holds it in high regard that someone would be the Lord's anointed. Now, when we think of the word anointed, what what comes to your mind? What act? Tim? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty customary in the Old Testament to be anointed with oil. Uh, Kings and priests, that activity both happened to them. It seems a little weird to us that you would like pour oil on someone's head, but it was like a physical representation or symbolic of this appointment, this designation from God to a certain task. And in Saul's case and in David's case, they were both anointed by Samuel, However, David keeps calling Saul, not Samuel's anointed, but the Lord's anointed. This is a throwback to when Saul was made king of Israel. We're not going to turn there, but if you remember, after these people are crying out to Samuel for a king, Samuel says, okay, whatever, I give in. You guys all gather in this one spot, and we'll pick a king for you. So everyone shows up, tribes, clans, families, and these lots are cast. And systematically, as the lots are cast, all of the tribes are weeded out, and it's just Benjamin that remains, and then Saul's father's clan that remains, and then Saul is chosen by the lot. And from the people's perspective, they just kind of roll with it, like, Okay, I guess the lots have revealed. Saul is the king. Long live the king. Okay, all of this takes place in one day from their perspective. But what they don't see is what took place behind the scenes. Because prior to this event, God had told Samuel, Hey, I'm sending this guy Saul your way. Keep an eye out for him. I want you to anoint him the next king of Israel. So Saul, he's just out looking for his dad's lost livestock. Thinks Samuel can help him out. He's a prophet. He might know these things. So he goes to him, and Samuel says, I have much bigger things for you than finding these donkeys. Neil, I'm anointing you the king of Israel. And Samuel actually says, when this happens, 1 Samuel 10, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And Saul does go on to do that, to deliver 
excuse me, to deliver Israel from their enemies. But the more important point is that it wasn't the people who chose Saul. It, it, it wasn't Samuel who chose Saul. It was who? It was God. God chose Saul. God appointed him to the throne long before these lots had ever been cast. God chose Saul to be king. David understands this. Saul was put in this position by God, and so for David to kill Saul is not just murder. If you're tracking with me here up to this point, for David to kill Saul is really an expression of what? Any idea? If Saul is the Lord's anointed and David were to kill him, what is David communicating? Yeah, rebellion. A a disregard for God's man. A contempt for God's timing, for God's person that he himself chose. David, in those two opportunities he had to kill Saul, if he had killed him, would have been saying, listen, God, uh, I think I'm a better candidate than Saul, and I think my timing is better than Saul's. So I'm just going to do what I want here. No, 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 no. David understands God put Saul in this position. For me to take matters into my own hands is really an offense to God. And that is why when given occasion to kill Saul, David says this, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. The end of Saul's reign is not for David to decide, but God. While we're on this topic, I have another question for you guys. Does God still appoint rulers to positions today? He does. We might scratch our head at that and say, Saul didn't turn out all that well. God still appointed him to that position. You're telling me that the current leaders in our society, in other cultures around the world, God put them there? Actually, yeah, that's the pretty clear teaching of the scriptures. Daniel says this in a prayer of thanks to God. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. Notice, he removes kings and sets up kings. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Isaiah 45, God talks about this guy Cyrus, who he has purposed to make king of not Israel, but Persia. And he says, Cyrus, I've chosen you as my agent to be the king of Persia. You're going to do great things for Israel. You're going to fund the rebuilding of their temple. You're going to let them return from exile. And oh yeah, this is happening 150 years before Cyrus is even born. God is already talking about him. He names him by name. Maybe the premier passage on God's appointment of our leaders is Romans 13, which says there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And these texts remind us 
that although there may be the appearance of human selection in choosing a ruler, who's really behind it? Goddess. And it's kind of comforting, to be honest, to consider that God has equipped these people with authority because sometimes we look at human rulers and we're like, yikes. If this person's in charge, we're in trouble. Things are not going to be good. And yet we need to remember this. God has given those people their authority. And equally, God can remove that authority they possess if he so chooses. And so what should our response, if we agree that God gives our rulers their authority, what is our response then to that authority? The Bible's not silent on that matter either. Here's the whole of Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It is pretty clear here. We have an obligation to what? Submit to our authorities. Governing authorities. Notice what this text says, particularly those who resist the authorities resist not a human ruler, but what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. I do realize this gets a little bit more nuanced as we consider that sometimes our governing authorities tell us things that stand in contrast to what God's word teaches, right? We know that they always don't align. And so when that happens, obviously, we need to obey God, as Peter says, rather than men. But by and large, our disposition, our attitude towards government, towards authority, should be one of subjection, of obedience, submission to them, because they didn't put themselves, excuse me, they didn't put themselves there. God did. How about this? First Timothy. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places. Paul's encouraging us here, pray for our leaders. And not this prayer that God would take them out. The verse is going to go on to say that they might be saved. Are are we praying for our leaders' salvation? They might repent and find forgiveness in Christ? Lastly, 1 Peter says this, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Keep in mind, when these things were written, Peter wasn't talking about some emperor that was seminary trained and taught Sunday school on Sundays at his church and was just someone who was super easy to honor. Right? This is a guy who is participating in the persecution of Christians hates them. Peter talks throughout his book, expect suffering. And yet our disposition towards even good or bad rulers, the emperor in this case, is to honor him. Here's something for us to think about. Being a good follower of Jesus 
also requires us to be good citizens, to be people who obey, honor, care so much about our authorities that it is reflected in our prayers for them, that we are burdened that they might know Christ. And I think we see some of this honor that is being talked about on display in the last part of chapter 1 with David's lament. We'll pick up the lament in verse 19 where we read, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. You who clothed, excuse me, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The reverence that David shows for Saul here astonishes me. Honestly, uh, my brain cannot quite compute all of these really nice things David is saying about Saul. Right, let me just read some of the descriptions. He calls him the glory of Israel, a mighty warrior, beloved and lovely, swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Saul is described as clothing the daughters of Israel luxuriously in scarlet and gold ornaments. And maybe it's just me, but I'm reading these things and I'm like, are we talking about the same Saul here? The same Saul who killed a whole city of priests because he thought they had aided David in escaping him? The same Saul who, as I mentioned earlier, chucks a spear at David a couple times trying to kill him? The same Saul who consults a necromancer for counsel. And, and David speaks of him in these glowing terms and, and is incredibly gracious in Saul's death, even. And yet what we're observing here in David is pretty consistent with what we've observed of his treatment of Saul in the past. David's always been gracious to Saul. He, he, he demonstrates a great respect for him, even when there's not all that much that is worthy of his respect. Uh, even in the couple of instances where he and Saul interact, David is always humble. I believe he calls Saul his, his father one time. He uh, refuses to kill him a couple of times. Here's a guy that's his enemy for all practical purposes, and David is singing his raises because he is, after all, the one whom the Lord appointed to be king. David understands that. 
And he has respect for God's choice. And he has respect for God's man. I think we have demonstrated for us a great example of how to treat people that maybe have mistreated us. Maybe have a different political persuasion than us. I think we would do well to model David's example here and trust the Lord to judge. David says this in 1 Samuel, Saul, the Lord's going to have to judge between us. Let's also do that. And in the meantime, show some grace. Think the best about others. Even though there's a lot piling up against Saul that we would look at and throw stones at, David is careful to sing his praises and have respect for even his enemy. As we finish, I just want to remember Saul and, excuse me, David and Jonathan's friendship. We read something there at the very end, verse 26. David says, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And at first, the language here strikes us as a little odd, admittedly. Uh, It's very obvious that David loved Jonathan. They were dear friends. At a time where Saul was David's enemy, there was someone in Saul's house who was an ally to David, who was a friend to him, who warned him that Saul was coming after him to kill him. Uh, These two guys made a covenant with one another. Uh, Jonathan says something like, please, I know the Lord is going to uh, appoint you as the next king. Please show mercy on my family. Uh, uh, From For all practical purposes, it would have been Jonathan who was next in line to be king after Saul. And he doesn't just, like, flaunt that and carry it around like, you know, David's my enemy if God's chosen him instead of me. He is incredibly kind and gracious to him, shows him just a true example of what biblical friendship should be. And I just wanted us to reflect on some other verses in Scripture that talk about friendship and what that looks like. A lot of times we can take the family relationship and kind of put that on a pedestal and say, well, my family is, you know, important. Yes, I'm not discounting that, but the Bible has a lot to say about friends as well. Some familiar verses, Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27, 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. I had one more verse. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a person. And I just want to encourage us this morning to be the friend like Jonathan was to David, like we've just considered from these passages, who's willing to sometimes say hard things. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right? We love people enough to say, hey, 
I, I've observed something in your life that just isn't quite Christ-like. Uh, who, who loves at all times, as uh, Proverbs 17 says, who offers good counsel, who is there to lift up another brother in Christ. Let me encourage you to give uh, just an increased uh, priority to friendship and biblical friendship, one that is, as the Bible describes, iron sharpening iron. Uh, I have been the recipient of friendship from all of you guys, and it has been awesome. The Christian life is not supposed to be done alone. Let's come alongside each other, put our arm around each other, and say, hey, we're in this together. Let's follow Jesus together. Let's love one another. Let's encourage one another. If, someone, if one of us does something, speak to it. Point me back on the straight and narrow path. I think David and Jonathan exhibit biblical friendship really, really well for us. I think it's important for us to consider what biblical friendship is as, as well. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for 2 Samuel. We've hit a lot today, Lord, uh, just a wide variety of things from uh, our response to government and those you have put in authority to friendship. Lord, I ask that particularly my heart would be sensitive to uh, those who are in authority over me, remembering that you've put them there, you are sovereign, you are in control. Might not always be my first choice, as I'm sure Saul wasn't David's, and yet, Lord, you know all things. Your way is perfect. Help us to trust you, to submit, to even pray for those who are in authority. And Lord, I, I ask that you would help us from the friendship standpoint to be these godly friends, to be people who truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ and are just passionate about helping them in their walk with you. It's in Christ's name.